Well, good morning on this beautiful February 12th, Sunday morning. It was great to walk in the sunshine. However, for some of us in here, for certain American husbands, there are dark clouds on the horizon because in two days it's Valentine's Day, that day of testing. I currently have a dilemma. My wife just left for a quick trip back to the States, and I'm not sure if I get an exemption for that. I'm hoping that a text will do it. I had another danger in regards to what I'm going to talk about today, because what I want to talk about today is a great topic. It is a great topic that you're somewhat familiar with. I'm reminded of the proverbial story, which uh, probably the most common version took place a few hundred years ago in India, but it would apply anywhere. There were five blind men who had never seen of an elephant, had never heard of one, had never knew nothing about it whatsoever. And one day as they were walking, they heard a commotion and they said, what is that? And they were told, it's an elephant. And they said, we want to see. Little pun there. And they said, well, here they are. So the five men went over. And the first one happened to come up to the side of the elephant. And he felt it. And he said, whoa, elephants are like walls. And the second one got their trunk. And they said, whoa, elephants are like this really thick vine. And another one grabbed the ear and said, no, an elephant is like a big leaf. And another one grabbed the leg. It's like an elephant is like a tree trunk. And all of that was fine until they were leaving and engaged in a discussion regarding what does an elephant look like. And each of them, with great certainty, said, an elephant looks like a tree trunk. And another guy said, how can it be that way? It wasn't, I felt this. The great topic that we have today is on the greatest commandment, as Jesus said. Now, when these blind men, before they had seen an elephant or touched one, they would have told you, I don't know, I don't understand an elephant. But they were in a dangerous position after they touched one the first time in thinking, okay, now I know what an elephant is. And the next time the topic came up, hey, well, you want to go see an elephant? Yeah, you know, no, I don't need that. I already know. I win. An elephant's like a wall. Today we're going to be centering on Mark chapter 12, but then we're also going to be looking in Deuteronomy. If you uh, would like to think about these things some more, it'd probably be good to write down some of these verses for yourself later. So, we're going to talk about the greatest of commandments, Mark chapter 12. I want to read it again. You heard it once in the reading. There's a couple points I want to emphasize. One of the teachers of the law came. Jesus was engaged in long discussions. The teachers of the law, the religious leaders, were trying to trip him up. They were trying to make him look bad. They were trying to show he was confused. They were trying to argue with their knowledge and understanding of what God was doing. And a lot of their knowledge and understanding was wrong and was inaccurate. Of all the commandments this teacher came up, which is the most important? The most important one answer, Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man said, you are right in saying God is one and no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. So here we have what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, the most important. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. So, how's it going, the loving God business with everything all the time? Past year, you just finished one, and I didn't quite make that. How about the new year? You doing well so far? Oh, let's get realistic. How about getting to church this morning? Was it full and overflowing with loving God with all your soul, heart, mind, strength, and everything, every second, every thought? Maybe not. We've all heard of this before, loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Uh, it seems kind of hopeless. I can't look back at a year. I can't look back at a month, a week, a day. I'm not sure how many seconds I could look where I'm sure that I was actively loving God with every single part of me. So then I have to process that, and when you hear this from a young kid, you process that, and you say, okay, I guess it's one of those hopeless goals you have which just points you in the right direction, but nobody thinks you'll ever make it or do it. Kind of like a five-year-old who wants to be an Olympic pole vaulter, and you say, all right, here's what you need to do. Every night, I want you to run and jump and see if you can touch the moon. Well, if they go out and run and jump every night, that might help, but sooner or later, they're going to figure out, whoa, whoa, that is utterly impossible here. And sometimes I think some of us who were raised and we hear these, heard these things from young age, we start to think, yeah, that's a nice saying, but it doesn't work. That's a nice promise, but, you know, trust me, don't get too excited about that one. Today I want to look at just two areas of this great topic, not comprehensive at all. And I have two points. The first one is the command stands. The command stands. Yes. Love God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time. The good news is the invitation is still open. The command stands, but an invitation is open. My wife's grandparents lived in Ethiopia. They went there in the 1920s. And uh, aside from a few years of the war, they were there through the 50s. As we were going through old stuff, we uh, came across a faded small piece of paper, which uh, you can't read. That's okay. I'll read it for you. It says, by command, 
of his imperial majesty, Holly Selassie I, you are invited to attend the ninth anniversary reception of his return to power. So, that's kind of cool. It's like, whoa, all right, you know, grandpa and grandma got to go to Holly Selassie's. But what struck me is, by command of his royal majesty and emperor, you are invited. Now, being a good Western American type of individualist, which is like, uh, you know, whoa, you push me and, and I'll probably say no. It's like, what do you mean I'm invited by command? How does command go with invitation? Doesn't that like cancel each other out? The command references the giver. He is the imperial majesty who can command. The invitation is where I fit in. It's like, oh, it's for me. I get to decide. But yet, who's going to turn his royal imperial majesty down? I, I, I don't think so. I, I think I have to go. I have a command and I have an invitation. And I suppose if I was in a particularly individualistic mood and uh, anti-monarchy at the time, then I just may say, you know, I just don't like that. I'm going to say no to that. The greatest commandment is a command. You can't get around that. It's a command by God. Jesus reaffirmed it. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. But in a similar way as this invitation, which was a command that you really had better think twice before saying no to, if you really stop, I think all of us could agree, whoa, that would be really cool to have his imperial majesty invite me to one of his things. Really? Is this really for me? Yeah, it says it. It says Phil West on it right there. This is for me, and he wants me to come. Yes. That is great. I uh, haven't, you know, haven't been doing much for the king lately, but he still wants me. That's marvelous. And my first point in this is the invitation is still open for those of you who are God's children and, and you haven't loved God with all your soul, heart, strength, not even half. It doesn't happen very often. And you've known about this for decades. Don't you think God should just say, forget it? Well, on a human effort level, I think he should. But God does not deal with me for what I earn. God deals with me by his command. And he says, hey, Cray, February 12th. February 11th was not a banner day in your life. However, listen. Please, Craig, I invite you to love me today. Pursue me today. Pursue me. I invite, I want that. I want that from you. Would you do that today? Revelation 3.19 is a passage that we're familiar with, probably. I'm not sure we get it right most of the time we hear about it. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. This is Jesus speaking to one of the churches of Revelation. 
Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is that invitation. This is even better than that. Jesus comes to your house, to your door and knocks and says, here I am, would you let me in? I'd like to clarify one thing first. This is not, I do not believe this is a good verse for salvation. As though you're sitting there and you hear Jesus coming and you say, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll let him into my life. No. If you are not his child already, then the picture is you are bound and chained to the wall, you are gagged, and your house is on fire. And Jesus comes to your door and it won't do any good for him to say, could you open up? Because you can't. You need a Jesus who busts your door down and breaks your chains and brings you out. But for those of us who are his children, which is this referencing, this is Jesus coming to my door. And, and the church this was written to was, was not a very good church at the moment. They hadn't earned a visit. He came and said, hey, I'd love to come in and eat with you. And You see Jesus, you peek out the window, and it's like, wow. Um, I know he's texted me, but I haven't returned him. I unfollowed him on Facebook. He just has so many things he says that I, 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 and I haven't, you know, he sent me letters. I haven't read them in a long time, and my house is a mess. Um, I just maybe would prefer not to let him in. But then something inside of you maybe says, but this is Jesus, God in the flesh, and he says he wants to spend time with me? He wants to come in and eat with me? I, I got to see if this works. And you open the door and you go, oh, hi, Jesus, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I haven't, didn't return your text. And, uh, and listen, my house is a mess. And uh, I'd invite you to eat. But, um, you know, all I have is donuts and maple syrup. That was my dinner. And I know, I know, I'm not taking care of my body very well. And, and the house, you know, do you want to wait here in 10 minutes or come back tomorrow? And, and Jesus said, I would like to come in and I'd like to share your food with you now. Well, let's clean up. No, he says, I don't need it cleaned up. I knew it was a mess. You know what? We're just going to sit and talk and eat tonight. I brought the food. And... Uh, you know, later on, we'll start cleaning up you and me together here. That's the invitation extended to you and me if we are God's children when he says, Craig, love me with all your heart, with all your soul. I really want that, you know. Really, Lord? The second point, the command stands, but you cannot obey it. Well, that's kind of the harsh edge. What do you mean I can't obey it? Well, I would have to say experientially in my life, there is no reason to think I can do this. I've been through all the cycles. I've, I've repented. I've been sorry. I tried to do better. I made a schedule. I got accountability group. I, I just, I tried it all. It just isn't going to happen. Craig cannot pull this off. Really? Every second, every thought, I just don't think it's going to happen. I cannot obey it. 
1 John chapter 4 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I know, I know, we ought to love. I ought to, because God loves me, I really ought to. I know that, I know that. I owe love, I really ought to. And, and if this is the first time you heard that, maybe you have hope that because you ought to, you will. But for probably most of us, we know that, and we know knowing we ought to doesn't seem to do it. I can't do it. There were 12 men who spent the greater part of three years with Jesus almost all the time. And on the night he was crucified, he told the 11 that were left, and he said, you know, in just a little while, you all are going to run. And they said, no, we won't run. We will go with you. We will die. We're there. Count on us. And within a couple hours, they all ran. And they'd been with Jesus three years. We can't do this. Since this is a short view, we won't spend much time, but I just want to reference. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the first time we hear this command that is given to love God with all our hearts. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is Moses talking to them. We've, he went through all the law. They're going through the laws. Do this, don't do that, do this, when, and so on like that. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all the decrees and command that I give you. So you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, be careful to obey so it may go well with you that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk in the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorpost of your houses and on your gates. I just want to say one thing. Somehow, this loving God with heart, soul, and mind is an issue that begins, that is centered, that is supported in your home. It doesn't take place out of a church or out of a small group. It starts in your home, in the mornings, when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you go to sleep. So this great command is something which happens centered in the home in everything you do goes on in the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you, speaking to Israel, because you were more numerous than all the other people, because you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he chose to your ancestors that he brought you out of the land of slavery. Another point of clarification to the setting of the command. Oh, and by the way, people, the reason you're getting this invitation to love me is not because of anything you've done. You're not impressive. You didn't earn this. You're small. You're weak. You're timid. So I just want you to know my invitation to you to follow me and love me, you didn't earn it at all. I chose you. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you. Because when you have eaten and are satisfied, you should praise the Lord your God to the land he gave you. Be careful, do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, your heart will become proud. You will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You will say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. So here's another contributing factor to this. Danger. You are going to tend to think that the good things that happen to you really somehow have tied in with your faithfulness and your works. That somehow you earn those. And Moses is very clearly saying, this is what's going to happen, people. You're going to be sitting there, and you've worked hard. You built your house, you planted your vineyard, and you're going to be sitting there saying, this is great. Whoa, have I done a good job or what? And there's the warning. The warning again is you thinking you can contribute anything to God's invitation to love him with all your heart and with all your soul. The Israelites... Well, maybe they were the first of God's people to show this, but we still struggle with this ever since, in which we receive gifts. If we like the gifts, we start obsessing with the gifts, and we forget the giver. And we put our trust and our hope into the gifts, and we struggle with that ever since. Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul is speaking about this in verse 21. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. There was an exchange that went on here. And God gave blessing and we grab the blessing and we say, this is good. This is what I want. And we begin to put our hope and our trust in that blessing. And even though... Paul uses this to describe the rise of literal, visible idolatry. The extent of idolatry is when we put our trust in something other to God, we can do the same things. And so God gave you a beautiful wife, a beautiful husband. He gave you a beautiful brain. He gave you success. He gave you a great personality. He gave you good looks. And somehow we begin to put our trust in all of those things, and we begin to glorify those. And they attract our love and our affection. And we join the world in idolatry. With wealth and success, arrogance is a close friend of those two.
John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's not a key point to my message, but that is just so cool. Jesus loved his people to the end. And the first interpretation of that would have been until he died, he loved them up to the very end. But of course, we now know the end hasn't happened. And Jesus is still loving me to the end. But the end is not a final point in time. The end is a place and a relationship with God in heaven. Verse 34, Jesus is talking to his disciples. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know if you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus said, I'm giving you a new command. Well, no, we're supposed to love each other. That's what's the new part about this. It's the same command. You've got to love each other. I'm giving you a new command. As I loved you, so you must love one another. Oh, yeah, I know. I know, I know that verse. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would love that person. Okay, as Jesus loves, okay, I need to love. I missed the point. Jesus is not the great example here. A lot of reasons what would Jesus do is too simplistic, if not dangerous. This would be one of those. We're not supposed to follow Jesus the way shower. You know, hey, go this way. We're not supposed to follow Jesus and do what he did in our own strength. As I have loved you, then love each other. I know, I, I look at your beat. No, he says, as I have loved you, Craig, would you love the others? Well, then all of a sudden, Jesus has not become my model, my example. Probably most religions in the world point to Jesus. Ah, great example, we should all act more like Jesus. What Jesus is saying, though, to you is, I love you, you know, and as I love you, Complete, sacrificial, never ending, never missing a beat. As I love you, guess what? You get to love others. All of a sudden, the emphasis is not on my duty to perform to love you, but the emphasis is on my focus on God's word where Jesus says he loves me, and I say, really? And if I need to focus on anything, it isn't trying to behave better and love other people more. It is really looking into the eyes of Jesus and hearing his words and saying, is that true? Can that be true? 1 John 3, chapter 1, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. That's the starting point. I am a child of God. Now, all of a sudden, maybe I get a little more caught up into, wow, maybe God really does just love me. Now, many of us can picture that. 
can picture as a parent, or especially as a grandparent, it's like, you're my grandson, I love you. I don't care what you do, you're in. That's it. You, you can't do anything that takes me out of who you are to me. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and hates his brother is a liar. Whoever does not love his brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. He's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. If I view this as my duty, okay, what are my instructions? If I love God, I have to love you. Okay, okay. I will love you. I'm going to work at this. I really am. Well, no. You see, if I love God, it's because I've accepted and put my trust in the fact that I'm loved by God. And my love to him is, is only returning what he gave me. So as he has loved me, I get to love him I am full of his love, and it ends up kind of overflowing on you. And if over long term, day after day, my love does not overflow on you, then according to this verse and a little math, if we switch the sides of the equation, there's a hanging question here. Well, if you can't love the people who are near you, if you treat them in this manner, then that means you are not full of love that's overflowing, which means you, are you not full of love? Do you not realize God loves you? Or maybe you're not even God's child. And John does more than imply just that that would be a good question. It, it's not that we just sit there and say, okay, I'm loved by God. Dallas Willard, who I appreciate and who makes me think, has a statement. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Oh, no, grace, grace, all by grace, you don't do anything. You don't do anything to earn. But if you receive grace, you do a lot. But the motivation is, I better do it to keep this and earn. No, the motivation is, I got so much for free. I'm overflowing. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to, I'm motivated now to follow through. I'm motivated to act on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes a statement that uh, integrates grace and effort. For I am the least of the apostles and did not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am. That would probably be worth meditating on for days. I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace to me was not without effect. Now the effect Paul's talking about is not the justification, made God's child, propitiation of God. All of that happened. He's talking about the effect of me receiving God's grace is it overflowed into my efforts. No, I worked harder than all of them, meaning the other apostles, yet it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was at work in me. Back to 1 John 4. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We're coming back to this ought. For virtually all of my Christian life, that ought was the moral imperative. Craig, you ought to do, I know, I know, I should, and and that was it. But it's not given. What if it isn't given as a moral imperative? I'm a science teacher. I, I like science principles. So... What if we had a scenario, and uh, this cup is me, and I know I ought to be using my cup and sprinkling water on people to give them refreshment and cleansing and all sorts of that. I know I, I ought to do that. Well, I got to get the water, obviously. And maybe some days I go and get it, and, but the world tells me, you know, where to get a lot of things that seem to be refreshing. And worldly logic gives me some ideas of what you need to hear. So I'm responsible for, like, getting water in this, so I then can nobly go and share it with someone else. But what's the source of the water? I ought to. My cup ought to overflow. Now, my illustration is a little weak because I drove the subway today, and I didn't want to carry four liters of water. But uh, that that would be more impressive. If I were to take the lid off of this and pour it in this cup, I would say my cup ought to overflow. Don't you think so? But notice, that's not a moral sense. That's not a responsibility to the cup. Okay, cup, try hard to overflow. That's a cup that happens to be under a flow that's so great, it ought to overflow, and it is through no effort of the cup itself except to be in a position to receive. And so God never asked us to create love. He never asked us to come and find it and bring it to him. What he invites us to is to receive his love. And be so filled that you overflow. You can't help but overflow. In closing, in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul spends the first three chapters, most of us laying out doctrinal foundations of truth about us and God. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to transition and give us a lot of instructions on what to do. That's great. So how do you transition from this is God and this is what he's done and the second half of the book says now go out and do this. Be kind, don't lie, tell the truth, work hard and that kind of thing. How do you transition? And here is the transition at the end of chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family and on earth and in heaven derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now again, you're not going out trying to get God. You're not trying out trying to get Jesus to dwell in your heart. This is a work of the Spirit. You're praying that the Spirit would do this work in your heart so that Christ would continue to dwell within you. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people. And let me stop. 
you being rooted and established in love. You didn't decide to be rooted and established in love. You didn't walk around as a seed and, and pick your deposit point and say, boy, I'm going to be rooted and established. This looks like good soil. If you're a child of God, then when you entered into that death with Jesus and you became a new creation, you were rooted and grounded in love, God's love. That's in your every fiber. You don't need to go there. You are there if you're his child. And his prayer then is that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I'd like to point something out here. This is not a one-man job, a one-woman job. He says, I pray that you together with all of God's holy people would you like to explore the love of God for you? Then you need family to build you up. Nah, not really. To tell you your love. No, you really go to God for that. You need family to irritate you. You need family to let you down. You need family to not change so that you can explore together what the love of Jesus really is. You need family and two of them get in a fight, in a spat, it's nasty. And yet, it gets resolved in confession and tears and resolution and forgiveness and God love reigns. That's what it means to explore the love of Jesus for me is when I see that happen around me. We need each other. This is not a one-person exploration. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. May you individually, may we as a gathering of believers, may you in your own homes be pursuing this love of God, not having to chase it down, but pursuing it by believing that that's true and putting your trust in that. And I will close the way Paul closes this section in prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.